the series is a bit of a an homage to Canada, and I did this okay. quite deliberately. Uh, we Canadians live in our own little regions, in our own little silos, and we don't know an awful lot about other parts of the country. And so we tend to be somewhat judgmental and intolerant of other people's concerns and perspectives. I, I find that very frustrating. To me, I've been to every single province and territory in Canada, except Nunavut, and I will get there. Um, we live in an extraordinarily beautiful and diverse country. And we should all be really curious to know its whole. I, I, I honestly think that. So when I started writing the Amanda series, I was looking for iconic and unique Canadian landscapes across the country so that I could write a about each one. Um, I wanted to explore the whole of the country in books and, and share it with people in the hope that they would either remember things as you did or want to go there because they, the, the vision was so evocative. So I had been to Drumheller and I had driven through the Badlands. Um, I was really struck by how unique and otherworldly that part of the country is, unlike yeah. anything else. Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. This is episode four of season two. Today's podcast, we're having a discussion with a multi-published Canadian author. This author is a retired psychologist who is fascinated with why people turn bad. She has written numerous short <laughs> She has written numerous short stories and novellas as well as the critically acclaimed Inspector Green novels. She has been nominated four times for the Arthur Ellis Award of Excellence in the Best Novel category, and she has won twice with her Inspector Green series. One thing I enjoyed about our emails back and forth is that at the bottom she writes, stay healthy, stay sane. Hallelujah, yes. So tuning in from Ottawa, Ontario, Barbara Fratkin, welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Hello, Joanna. Thanks so much for inviting me. This should be fun. You're welcome. So we're going to try to do this without both our dogs trying to steal the show, hey? Yes. So your novel, which is just coming out, The Ancient Dead, I'm reading it, and Barbara, the writing is seamless it the reader it's like i'm just floating along with the narrative with the dialogue so smooth and there were two nights when i caught myself staying up late reading your novel um one night it was okay because it was a friday and i didn't have to work the next day um you know but the next night i'm reading and i i looked and i thought okay just you know a couple more pages i got to go to work tomorrow and then I looked up and I just thought, oh, crap, you know, because I basically, I, sadly, at my age, I had stayed up past my bedtime. Um, so this leads me to my first question. I follow a Facebook group called Canada Rights, and they had an article on there. Um, and it was basically, give yourself permission to write that crappy first draft. And my friend Caroline... Carol Ann and I refer to it as porridge. So given how smooth your writing is, just please tell me your first draft does not come out as, as what you what I was reading. <laughs> Thank you, Joanna, for those very kind words. I must say porridge is a nice word for what <laughs> I would describe uh, my first draft as. But, but anyway, that what you see, that supposedly seamless thing, is the result of a year's work and numerous rewrites. Um, yeah. I am the queen of the crappy first draft. Um, 
For one thing, I write my first draft longhand. I'm a real dinosaur. I curl up with a pen and a pencil, a paper, sorry, a pen and a pad of paper in my favorite chair, and I write the thing. As you can imagine, it's um, a mess when I'm by the time I'm done. It's full of scribbles and crossouts and whole pages slashed and things written around all four margins and um, insert a three pages back sections, all this kind of thing. It's almost impossible to, to, to decipher. Um, but it's the beginning. Uh, the other reason why my first drafts are a mess is that I don't work from an outline. I'm one of those type of writers who you call a pantser, although yeah. I'm a bit of a modified pantser now. Um, <laughs> I know outlines are useful. I've had yeah. to use them occasionally, but I find them stifling. I've never been any good at doing what I'm told anyway, even if it's <laughs> me that's doing the telling. Um, and it feels kind of paint by number. I say, okay, that's the next scene I'm supposed to write, and I write it, and it just doesn't feel like a flow. Now, this is not a reflection on anybody else's style. I think we all pick the kind of style that suits us, that makes us the most creative, and it taps into our most creative side. And for me, it's sinking into the story and letting it evolve. So each scene kind of evolves out of the previous one as if I'm feeling my way through the darkness, kind of. Yeah. Um, so I asked myself some questions along the way, things like, what should happen next? What would this character do next? And uh, one of my favorite, what's the worst or most exciting thing that could happen? So you're looking right. to up the drama all the time. Um, yeah. This style, of course, means that I go into the weeds a lot, wander down blind alleys and into dead ends and have to back myself out and write. Um, I have to add and delete sections, all that kind of thing as, I, as I'm trying to fix it. So what I do is I keep a separate file as I'm writing. Um, and I use this, keep this file on the computer of all the things I'm going to have to change now that this story has evolved from a different story than I'd originally thought it was. Um, so I have all these things that I need to fix. So when I finally reach the end of the story and I realize what the end is and what the story is actually about, then I can start fixing it using this file and rewriting and rewriting and polishing and so on. So that's kind of basically how it ends up at the end of a year. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And I find, uh, with the one I'm working on now, you know, I went back, read a scene, and I thought this scene does nothing to move this story along, you know, um, and I just about deleted it. And then I thought, well, can you work it? Can you work? What can you do with this? And I found, I said to myself, okay, the reader is expecting this character to do this. What, like you all, I just, all the what ifs I heard with you, what if this other character did this and it was just like fireworks mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you're like yeah okay you got to go with this <laughs> right and that's why okay. an outline is useless because you might have you've just wasted several days or hour, years or weeks or whatever long it took it took you to write that outline because now you have to toss it out because you're following your yeah. gut in a different direction that's right that's right yeah so can you let our, our listeners know um, a little bit about, without giving too much away, of what The Ancient Dead is about? Um, yes, it takes place in the Badlands of Alberta. Um, Amanda, who I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, she's my main character, Amanda Doucette. Um, mm -hmm. She is there to organize the next leg of her cross-country charity tour. She runs these adventure charity tours. And it's allowed me to take the series, series across the country. Each one of the Amanda books is set in a different iconic place in Canada. I started cool. in Newfoundland and I'm working my way west across the country. The book opens with a nature photographer discovering bones buried in a remote coulee. And he calls in the RCMP. Of course, when I thought of 
this bones idea was because of the Badlands are famous for dinosaurs, and there are lots and lots of bones in the Badlands. I just thought that's perfect. At the, yeah. at the same time as this happens, that Amanda um, sees a scene of an old homestead that reminds her of a photograph that she saw on her aunt's cottage wall back in Quebec. And when she asks her aunt questions about who the cowboy is in the photograph, her aunt is very evasive, but eventually admits that it's her missing brother, the aunt's missing brother, that is, who split with his family and went west 30 years ago to make his fortune in the oil patch. So the story follows Amanda and her efforts to trace what happened to her uncle, what happened to him, where he is, and what does it have to do with the bones in the coulee? Okay. I really enjoyed it. Um, it. You brought back memories for me because, and we'll get into this, um, because I have family in Alberta. And uh, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's really cool reading a book. And when the author, and we'll get into this, the writing triggers memories that you forgot just for like I'm talking memories from when I was a teenager so mm -hmm. thank you for that it was I, I, it, I really appreciated that so when I'm reading a novel for me logic is key and I have worked in the office of the police complaint commissioner and um, you know they're they're not charges but allegations of mis misconduct can be um, filed in a complaint against a police officer, you know, things like abuse of authority. I'm reading the scene when Amanda is asking her boyfriend, Chris, who's an RCMP officer. And RCMP is, so we didn't have jurisdiction over the RCMP. That's a whole different commission. Police complaints, we were all the municipal police departments in BC. So I just wanted to clarify that because it's important to me. Okay. When Amanda is asking Chris questions about, well, can you do this? You know, can you, can you look this up? And I'm reading it and coming from my background, I'm thinking, okay, what is Chris going to do? Cause she's, she's, she's wanting help, but it's out of her scope. But Chris being RCMP could easily find the answers for her. And I was happy to read and she asked him to do something. And he says, no, just a flat out no. And I thought, yes, <laughs> right? you know, like that is logical. He's just like, no. And so my question is, this is fiction where we can have some leeway, but on a scale, how important is it to you to maintaining the realism, thinking about your character, Chris, and the questions Amanda asked him? Because I have read some authors who, you know, they'll have the, the jet plane taxing off the runway in a foreign country and no questions is asked of the hero. So how, how are you balancing the realism with the fiction? Well, readers uh, like you are um, exactly the reason why I'm very careful to try to stick close to reality. Uh, I, I recognize there are certain things you have to change. A, reg, a regular murder investigation would normally, in its acute phases, involve you know, 60, 70 officers. But you can't have a cast of characters in a novel with 60 characters. Nobody's going to be able to keep track of them. So you, know, you, you limit it to two, three, four cops that do, do the work in the story. But other things... I try to keep as realistic as possible. I research very thoroughly, and I, although I may give myself license to stretch reality like that, it's, it's only because it's important to the story. Yeah. As writers, we're trying to take you on a journey. We're welping, welcoming you into our world, and we want you to follow us. And uh, we want you to be in the character's shoes, not yeah. sitting there looking at a book, but caught up in their journey. And every time I get something wrong, it's going to yank you out of that story. Yeah. It's going to make you shake your head and see the journey for what it is, a bunch of words on a page made up by the author. 
And it undermines your trust in us and in the story we're telling. And it makes you it makes you wonder, if I make a mistake on this little thing, how can I believe the big things I'm saying? And I say a lot of big things in this book. And I want people to believe that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that word trust. And, uh, you know, my husband and I had this conversation last night because my daughter is a student nurse. And I'm, I'm asking her about kidney dialysis. And, you know, he's, he was saying how, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know this stuff, Joe. And I'm like, that's fine. I go, but my name, you know, my name is going to be on this book. And if I make a mistake, th- that tarnishes my name. And I like, I like what you said, trust. The readers have that trust in the author. And I guess, I guess that's why the, I bang this logic drum so much. Because if I, as a reader, cannot see the logic in the character's decision-making, that character loses credibility. It sounds like you have the same feelings about that. Uh, yes, that's that's the point I was trying to make. It's not just um, the author's credibility that's damaged, but it's also the character's um, credibility. He's no longer a believable character or a real character. It's the same way when you watch a CSI show made in the U.S., and there's the um, forensic team prancing around the body with with long golden curls draping down over the body. And you're just thinking, come on. At least some yeah. nowadays are starting to catch on that maybe they should put them in bunny suits and, and, yeah. and maybe they should wear, have eye goggles and whatnot, you know. But, but there are many, many places, as you say, where people stretch the reality to such a point that that character is just not believable as a forensic yeah. scientist. Um, yeah. To me, the, the story, every scene starts with character, with what the character thinks and feels, what they want. That's one reason outlines don't work for me, because the character evolves over the book. I get to yeah. know him better over the book. I start off well, with Amanda, obviously, I do know, but most of the characters are brand new to me when I introduce them. And I find out what what they're doing and who they are as the book evolves. Um, what happens to them in a scene early in the book affects what they do in the next scene. So I'm in their head imagining what they're going to do next. If I need the some story to go somewhere else than that character would, then I have to either change the character I have to change my plan of what's going to come next. That's so cool. So you mentioned about Amanda Doucette. Now you've taken a little detour from the Inspector Green novels. And The Ancient Dead is the fourth Amanda Doucette novel. And I was wondering, what or who was the inspiration behind Amanda? Well, when I created Inspector Green... I knew absolutely nothing about creating a series character. I knew I loved the British crime novels, the famous ones like P.D. James and Ian Rankin. And uh, well, he's Scottish. He'd probably hate that I'm called him British. But anyway, um, (laughs) and uh, so I created my inspector and I just tossed him into the novel and off we went. I was lucky in that he evolved over time and people actually became attached to him. And he was a credible character. But it was a bit of a fluke to begin with, I must confess. With Amanda, I had about 10 green novels under my belt. And I had another series under my belt. And I knew a little bit about, plus I talked to an awful lot of authors and been connected in the mystery world longer. I knew a little bit about what you needed to do to create a decent series character especially if you're creating a character that has absolutely no business investigating a crime. Um, I write realistic fiction, I don't, so I can't have a, a cook or a, a tea, tea house owner or whatever investigating crime. That's a sort of a different type of novel in another subgenre, and I, I, I have not, no problem with them, but, but people wouldn't buy it from me. People would think, oh, Barbara, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> So I needed a character who was going to be uh, to be a, to to be a investigating crime when they have no business to, 
and being successful at it, you need a character who's resourceful, um, independent-minded, stubborn, good skills for survival and for doing, coming up with solutions, problem-solving. And you have to have somebody who's a little bit mistrustful of authority, because otherwise, why wouldn't they just phone 911? This is yeah. what everybody should do, right? That was the kind of context in which I was trying to create a character. And I was looking and looking and looking for what should she be? What should her profession should be? What what would what would bring her? It also has to bring her into trouble, like into expose her to crime. I've lived a whole lot life without really ever stumbling over a dead body. So I think most of us won't, right? So um, yeah. at least not a dead body that was murdered. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was fumbling around looking and not happy with any of the types of character possibilities I had. And then, yeah. uh, and then I heard that story on the news about the schoolgirls kidnapped in Nigeria. Oh, and yeah. I think all writers do this. We're, we're what if people. We look at the, what's behind the story and we imagine the, the greater context or the what yeah. happened afterwards or what happened, what led up to it. Um, that's our storyteller spinning imagination. So I looked at that and I thought, okay, we're hearing about these schoolgirls. We're hearing about the um, failures of the government soldiers and whatnot. But what about the people? who couldn't save the children? What about the people in the village, the, the parents, the teachers, the other villagers, and the aid workers? And then I thought, bingo, there's Amanda. Yeah. She's, uh, she was in that, well, she, well, I didn't use that exact example because I didn't want Boko Haram coming down on me. So I, I didn't actually name the group, but I used that example of a of a traumatizing event in Africa, which left her f f feeling guilty, feeling a need to redeem herself, struggling with fears and determination, conflicting in her personality. So it was, it was just perfect. That's how she came to be. That is so cool. Whoa. I'm glad I asked you that question. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Often people don't. I mean, not in that not in that depth that is so cool oh because i remember that same incident oh god yeah i love doing these podcasts because i'm exposed to so many good in novels mystery fiction the only thing i find is i read a novel i put my questions together i'm enjoying it and there's times when I want to read the next one or the one before in the series, but it's like, no, you can't, you got to move on to the next one, right? <laughs> so I'm hoping when, when I retire, I'll, I'll have more time that I can go, yep, I can, I can go to the, the previous novel. So The Ancient Dead, I wouldn't say it is political, but you do bring to light realities of Alberta's oil industry. And it's through not even your main character, but um, I don't want to say a minor character, but she's a bit, she's not like the, the main star in this novel, but it's Maeve. And she provides info to our heroine, Amanda, and the reader learns about the pitfalls of being a rancher. Um, and I had no idea, like I had... You know, here I knew that, okay, farming, it's you're dependent on weather and climate change and, you know, elements that are totally out of control. But it's how you wrote about it, how, you know, you through Maeve, where she's saying not enough rain, too much rain, freak snowstorm in June or September, you know, wells running dry, price of oil too low, company bankrupt, oil wells sitting there. And it was this line where you, you say, leaking god knows what kind of poison into the soil soil and it's okay it's okay and with each novel is one goal like one goal is um, providing entertainment value but through your characters are you trying to, trying to educate through storytelling ah yes the dogs are in the room oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah yes um 
it's a fine line when you're writing a novel and not a polemic. As you say, our first goal is to, and my first goal is to write a ripping good yarn that will stick with people. Yeah. Uh, readers hate soapboxes. They can spot them a mile off. And yet mystery novels in particular, I think that we address some of the biggest moral, social, and humanitarian issues of the day, uh, yeah. probably more than any other subgenre. I think we have a voice that can reflect people's struggles and people's desperation and people's needs. And so I don't shy away from laying them out. Each one of my books tackles an underlying theme. Inspector Green's are a little different than Amanda's, but uh, I do want to reach people, but mostly I want to move them. I want to educate them, but I also mostly want them to see the world from other people's viewpoints and to experience the kinds of struggles that people have. Now, Amanda's yeah. a foreign aid worker, or, um, mm -hmm. so she's seen some of the darkest underbellies of society, and she's going to react to injustice. And so that's yeah. fairly easy for me to fold into those novels. And in your novel, you have <laughs> your character, Todd, and to me, he, I, this may be, I may be incorrect, but he kind of remind me a bit of a, a babe in the woods, you know, he's, he's trying to do the right thing. And at times when I was reading, I thought, oh, Todd, you're messing up here, you know, <laughs> but his heart is in the right place. He's so with, so our readers know, our, Todd is writing his own book, but he's using photography to tell a story. I really liked his dialogue in, in one scene. And Barbara, do you mind if I read it? Oh, go ahead. So in the novel, Todd says, I'm writing a book. It's always been a dream of mine to capture time. Our modern culture is so fleeting. Our history is being bulldozed under. And the record of it all is, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I love this line. And the record of it all being digitalized on clouds or dead hard drives, leaving no physical trace for future generations. Oh my God, I loved that dialogue. And um, I was wondering, like we have photographs, we have photo albums that seem to have stopped around 1998. And we don't take photos anymore to, to put in photo albums. And I was wondering, with Todd's dialogue, do you feel the same way as Todd with regards to paperback books versus ebooks or audiobooks? Or I'm wondering, what, what, where did that dialogue come from? Well, it actually came from, in a way, the opposite end of the spectrum. Because I've written a number of stories with a historical component to them. And when readers, when writers are trying trying to tell a historical story, sometimes they use diaries or letters, home from the front, for example, or old newspaper clippings. And these are all physical things that can get archived. And then I think, how are we going to research our modern day? How are social historians going to know? the ins and outs of people's daily lives today, because we live in the present tense today. We're, we live in a world of texts, of Snapchat, of fleeting communications, and as you say, digital photographs, which we send off um, on Instagram or whatever. Phone calls were the original, original villain in this, I think, in that they replaced letters home from camp um, and and letters communicated from foreign countries and that kind of thing. Just yesterday, I was trying to do something in the spare bedroom, and I had to move a bunch of things off the bookshelf, and, and including a whole stack of five and a quarter inch floppy disks oh. um, that had my original short stories on them. And I thought, you know, there probably is a, a place that will translate these into something usable today. But all of us are wandering around with things that 
are no longer usable. I have boxes and boxes and boxes of slides from the photo slides from the 70s, probably mostly the 70s. I don't even have a means to look at them anymore. I don't have a, a viewer. I could probably take them and translate them somehow. But still, there's a lot of stuff that is going to be lost because it's no longer um, tangible. Yeah. Um, and I and I think as long as I'm really glad I'm I'm uh, published in paperback. I am also in audio and in ebook, but I, you're right. I don't know how long those will hang around. And so authors that are published entirely in those digital formats without a paper copy are going to lose out on their longevity. Um, and my my great grandkids, assuming my kids don't ditch out, throw out all my paperback novels, will be able to open up something that great granny wrote. And I think that's really cool. That is cool. Yeah. So in your novel, Barbara, Amanda and the Peter Oaks family are dealing with um, family secrets. And as I'm reading this, so family secrets, family relationships, I'm always thinking about the beginning author, author. And when I was reading that, I thought, okay, what does family secrets and family relationships spell? Conflict. So conflict does not have to be a Mission Impossible movie of Tom Cruise trying to jump across a building. Okay. So thinking of the new writer, can you provide an example from the book or an, another example of easy day-to-day conflict? Um, yes, I think um, conflict should be in every scene. Okay. There should be, because it creates tension and, and it creates forward momentum. It poses a question and people will read to get the answer to it in some way, or at least feel apprehensive that it's there. And I love family secrets. I think they are at the base of so much of what we fight about in this world. They can be very little secrets or they can be very big secrets. And in Amanda's case, one of them is a fairly big secret. The disappearance of her uncle that she actually didn't even remember existed. He, he disappeared from her life when she was five. So that's a big secret that caused a lot of tension between her mother and her aunt and her and her aunt and her over the course of the book. Yeah. But there are always little secrets, or not little secrets, little conflicts running through every scene. And one of the ones that I use in this book was um, Amanda's supposed to be planning a, tr- a tour. So she's setting, she's meeting with companies and organizations that are going to be involved in this tour, like the um, Dinosaur Museum in Drumheller and a home um, ranch type of a, a, a setup that she's going to be bringing her um, kids to, the kids involved in the adventure. And she's supposed to be planning the the budget and the meals and the itinerary and communicating it to her um, colleague who does the logistical planning behind the scenes. And she keeps running off looking for her uncle or following leads and not remembering or putting off doing this tour planning as the date approaches. So her colleague is agitated about that and so there's that conflict that's going on through through the scenes. And then the other one that you mentioned earlier was with, with Chris, her RCMP friend, not doing the things she wants him to do. Right. Um, and she that that's a bone of contention between them that he's upset that she would even ask him. And yeah. she's very she's not one to follow rules. She yeah. thinks he's being a poke you know, a stick in the mud about it. So that's another interesting conflict through the book there. Um, Okay, I quieted my dog. Good. That's okay. Okay. (laughs) I I totally understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because conflict doesn't have to be huge. No, no. It can be you're trying to get home on time and and there's there's traffic, unexpected traffic or a snowstorm or anything like that. 
that's there are just all kinds of ways. Or you can be starving, or, or and and you have to finish a task. So your your conflict is between wanting to finish it fast so you can go and eat. Anything like that can work in yeah. a scene, just to amp yeah. up the. And it also provides an insight, little insights that make people human. Your characters yeah. human. Now that you've said that, insights and making the characters human, I'm uh, I'm huge with what I am learning. How do I say I'm learning? I'm learning. I'm still learning. I hope I'm. I hope as an author, I continue to learn all the time. And the thing, I, what I am learning, even with the book I'm reading now, is it's the little things that are grabbing me as the reader. Now. You have a dog by the name. What is the name of your dog? I actually have two dogs. Okay. And one of them is uh, stuck beside me on a leash because he barks at every squirrel. Yeah. Um, and the neighbor neighbor cat and all that. But And his name is Kenzie. The other dog is um, an older female named Eva. And she's actually the prototype for Amanda's dog in the books. They're both Nova Scotia Doctolers, just like Amanda's dog. So she's just, I, I just use that exact character as Amanda's dog, Kaylee. And, okay, because Amanda, she does. She has, you said a Nova Scotia Doctoler? Doctoler, yes. Okay. <laughs> it's a big mouthful. Okay. Named Kaylee. And in there's a scene where Amanda has just hung up the phone. And she's had this uncomfortable telephone conversation. Again, conflict, you know, because she's she's debating about whether she should call, whether she shouldn't call. And you say instinctively, you know, she ran her fingers through Kaylee's soft fur. And I have done exactly that. And um, I remember in Victoria, pre-COVID, I was walking home. And I saw a homeless person sitting with his dog. And there was another man who was getting arrested and questioned by the police. And you're a writer. You will get this. Um, I was watching the homeless man because I was curious about his reaction. And just instinctively, the homeless man just started petting his dog. And I thought, and you, you do that. You do that for your, I know I do it for my own comfort. So would you would you agree that just like our conflict examples, those small gestures are golden moments to connect with your reader? Yes. Um, small gestures reveal a lot about character. How, you know, whether they stiffen, whether they wince, all that kind of thing. But they can also stir up a similar feeling in the reader. And I think that's where you know, if, if you're really lucky and your reader is in your character's shoes, they're walk, they're sunk, they're empathizing with that character. They should feel those feelings. It, just the same way, I don't know, I cannot watch a person cry without getting tears in my eyes. It doesn't matter if it's on the television or in a movie. You, if you're engaged you almost instinctively react with a similar feeling. I think there's a technical term for, for it called mirroring. It's not a deliberate calculating thing, de deliberate thing or a calculated thing that I do when I'm writing. I'm just yeah. in the character's mind and I imagine what they would do. And that's what you do. Um, and so it, it comes out in the story, but I think that it, readers will identify with that and feel the emotion too if you're doing the job right it's not calculated as i say but it's a yeah. happy byproduct of it it's almost natural it's yeah, natural it for what that yeah. character would do yeah okay so this is just uh, throwing in a fun little question here and it's all relative to your novel and this is again small moments you're sitting in starbucks are you the person sitting down at the table or are you the person standing with the food wanting the table? <laughs> I pondered this question when you told me <laughs> what it was because I'd be uncomfortable in either situation. 
I think yeah. I think I would probably be the person sitting at the table because I don't think I would be likely to stand over someone making them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if someone did that to me while I was yeah. sitting, I would probably get up and leave. Yeah. Okay. I like to, op- I want to try to do this more with my podcast and opening it up to the author. Did you have a particular goal in mind when you wrote this book, whether it was to bring the, bring attention to environmental issues, addressing social issues and the double standard around um, women being sexually assaulted and pregnancy? Did you, did you have a, a particular goal in mind? Um, not with this book. Uh, well, I had a particular goal, but it was none of the ones that you mentioned. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, the other books, the Amanda books, I, in fact, in most of my books, I had an idea of the theme I wanted to explore. Okay. Um, and that was about the extent of it. With mm-hmm. this fourth Amanda book, my goal when I started the book was to explore Amanda's past and to mm-hmm. probe more deeply deeply into her family background and how she came to be who she was. Because I kind of felt that the previous books, I had kept her very much on the plane of uh, the now, if you like. I hadn't gone into other than other than her traumatizing experience in Africa. People didn't know. They knew she had a mother. They knew she had an aunt and a brother. But they didn't know anything about We hadn't met any of those people. And so yeah. we didn't know why her relationship with them was relatively strained. And I decided it was time that I explored that and that my readers got a chance to learn a bit more about her, about her so that they would, she would have more depth. I conceived, and in my, you know, story evolving kind of way, instead of knowing where I was going and knowing what, what the end was going to be, I never know that. I conceived of these bones and that was the beginning. And I started to write the book and then I, I thought, who who could this be that would create a whole mystery for Amanda that, that we would explore in the present time, but would be connected to, would draw her, her family in. And, And that's where I came up with the idea of the uncle. As I was writing it, I discovered, I was actually very leery about introducing oil patch and environmental issues and all the Alberta politics into this book. It's such a fraught topic. Yeah. Um, and I felt as, as particularly as an Easterner yeah. trying to wade into that very emotional topic with any st- strong ideas or strong message would, would be unwise. It just, I just felt like I couldn't, I, I don't, know enough about how it really feels to be an Albertan stuck in that situation on either one in either one of those either side of the fence Um, but I did know that the issue of women in those work camps anywhere not just in the oil patch was a um, a big challenge there was a lot of meat in that kind of a, a topic and coincidentally, it was very much, when I was writing the book, it was very much at the height of the Me Too movement. So I thought, okay, this is a, this is a theme I can work into the book in a way. I, the topic came before realizing it was a theme. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I was writing the story and then I thought, oh, I can, I can work with this. So basically, yeah. I went backwards into this story. <laughs> well, hey, I get it. Cool. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thinking about, you were saying the story evolving and, you know, being a pantser, I'm exactly the same. What is, I found neat because you write in the third person and I, as the reader, I'm witnessing two storylines, you know, there's Todd and then there's Amanda's. And as the reader, you have, there's a scene where you have the two storylines just about um, intersect. And it, it's neat as a reader to see, uh, is, is, is it? No, right? You know, and it, they do intersect the storylines, you know, later on. Now, you have Todd's, I'll say, point of view, what he's dealing with. You have Amanda's. Now, 
the novel I'm working on, I have a character living in the 60s. And I wrote all her scenes at the same time. Just I was, you know, I was in the 60s before I jumped back to 2020. With your novel, did you focus on Todd's storyline and then worked on Amanda's? Or did you, as the story evolved, thought, okay, now this is Todd's, not, I don't want to say Todd's scene, but this is when Todd comes on stage. I was wondering, so how did you deal with the two storylines? I didn't write them separately because okay. they are too interconnected. Since I never know what's coming next in the novel and how it's going to turn out, each one of those storylines affects the other um, okay. at, at any one point. And what it, I call that a, a braided story, really. And Ooh. all of Amanda's books are a bit like that. Um, you've got several points of view and, they're, and you're trying to advance the story as a whole in a dramatic way with each storyline pulling part of the thread forward, if you like it. I don't know if that makes sense. So that it, is so cool. It, end, it, <laughs> end, it ends up being braided, yeah. And there were times when I thought, you know, I'm running along with what Amanda's doing, and then I realized, well, we, we need, the cops would be at this point in the investigation of the bones, so I need to move into the other storyline for a minute to or, you know, for a couple of scenes to evolve that part of the story so that that, that dramatic twist or whatever it is that's going to come up is in the right place in the story. And also to make sure people don't forget who, what the other storyline is. That, that's important, too. I don't know if... I've read books where you're bopping along in one timeline and you forget what the other what was going on in the other timeline, and then suddenly you're back in that one, and you can't can't remember where you are. It's kind of discombobulating. Yeah. So we wouldn't work to write them separately in this circumstance. Okay, okay. Uh, that's uh, gosh, braided story. I like that, and how you said each thread. That's 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 really that's really poetic. Very cool. Alice Bieta was on the podcast. <laughs> And her novel triggered many memories for me. And I had mentioned earlier about you triggered memories for me when I was a teenager. And mm -hmm. you write about the bright yellow fields. Yeah, it's it just when I read that, like I said, I was taken back. I was 16 again. I was visiting my sister in Calgary with my mom. And I remember the canola fields. And then I've been to Drumheller and I've seen the hoodoos and uh, yeah, it, okay. I'm just, I'm just going to say it. it was a good trip <laughs> down memory lane. Okay. <laughs> I was wondering about your connection to Drumheller. Um, well, it's very cool that you say that it was a good trip because that's part of what I've been trying to accomplish with this series yeah. I will talk about my connection to Drumheller in a minute, but the series is a bit of a an homage to Canada, and I did this okay. quite deliberately. Uh, we Canadians live in our own little regions, in our own little silos, and we don't know an awful lot about other parts of the country. And so we tend to be somewhat judgmental and intolerant of other people's concerns and perspectives. I, I find that very frustrating. Um, we, to me, I've been to every single province and territory in Canada, except Nunavut, and I will get there. Um, we live in an extraordinarily beautiful and diverse country. We should all be really curious to know its whole. I, I, I honestly think that. So when I started writing the Amanda series, I was looking for iconic and unique Canadian landscapes across the country so that I could write a about each one. Um, I wanted to explore the whole of the country in books and, and share it with people in the hope that they would either remember things as you did or want to go there because they, the, the vision was so evocative. So I had been to Drumheller and I had driven through the Badlands I was really struck by how unique and otherworldly that part of the country is. 
unlike yeah. anything else in the country. And so that was a very like I had I had I had started with Newfoundland and the, the gorgeous rugged seaside cliffs of the Great Northern Peninsula there. Um, I then I had moved to the Laurentian Mountains in Quebec, and then I had gone to third book was in Georgian Bay in the islands, which are unique in that part of Ontario, and so the next thing was to look at the prairies and to see what could I do in the prairies that would be really unique and the badlands because I had been there came to mind and because they're the home of the dinosaurs the idea the idea of buried bones and an ancient body yeah. an ancient murder was a perfect fit for me I could see I could see it how it all it all came together for sure so I would like to read one more passage, and I don't want to mess it up. It's, again, it was memory lane, and it's a beautiful description. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. I don't want to mess this up because it is so, so beautiful. Okay. She had marked the coordinates for the Oaks Ranch on her GPS and eventually found herself on a series of gravel back roads that passed through rolling mixed fields of hay, barley, and wheat. The area looked prosperous with sprinklers poised like giant insects on the edges of luxuriant crops. I love that line. (laughs) I love that. I have, and I saw it. And they are like big giant insects. And part of me, you know, I, w- I read that. And I thought, I have to ask her a question about this. But I didn't want to sound so obvious and say a question like, so how did you come up with that? <laughs> but Barbara, that's the only thing I think of. How did, how did you, that is beautiful. Well, uh, so, yeah, but you, because that's exactly what they look like. Yeah. Those, those um, sprinkler systems. Yeah. And the odd thing is that I've never thought of myself as a wordsmith or a poet. I think poetry is a very, very good thing for a writer of prose and fiction to try because there's nothing that captures images more concisely, vividly, um, and emotionally than poetry. But uh, I'm, I'm not very good at it. I spend a lot of time reading beautifully written prose and poetry and wishing that I could write like that. I think we all do that. We read a perfect sentence and we go, oh, how, where did that come from? But to me, I mean, images and metaphors come from a mysterious, magical place. I don't know. They either, they pop into your head. I've never been able to think of an image when I want to think of one. I've sat staring at something at the page, trying to figure out how to capture that thing in my head. I, I, yeah. I can play with words and I can get close sometimes or I can and yeah. I can polish up the metaphor once it's come to me. Yeah. But perfect words are hard to come by and they just I think it's an unco- it's a magical process, very much like much of creative writing, actually. I, I can't answer yeah. it any better than that. Well, it's it's beautiful. I and I was talking with another author in a group chat yesterday. And, you know, you, you had sent me because of the time restraints, because this book is, is just about coming out like in, in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. you know, like the book book, the printed copy. And um, you sent me your manuscript and I just did this big arrow at that passage okay. and thought, I, you know, and I, cause I would never do that to a book. You know, you never turn back the page yeah. corner, the yeah. pages or anything. Right. You know, but, big arrow and I thought I've got to I've got to ask her about this you know because this is this is beautiful so okay Barbara in the ancient dead if Amanda you're I'm getting coming up to my favorite question here if Amanda Doucette pulled up to your house driving the Hulk and jumped out because she wanted a word with you what do you think she would ask you I love this question it was completely out of left field. And I thought, what would she ask me? And I think she would ask me, 
Okay, boss, can we go to Nunavut next? And Excellent. That, that um, says a whole lot about Amanda, and it says a whole lot about me. I mentioned earlier yeah. that Nunavut is the one place I have not yet been. And to me, there are so many places in the world I want to see um, that I, I would seize the opportunity to go uh, once the pandemic is over yeah. to um, any place I could uh, in the world that's uniquely different than where I live, which is Ottawa. So that's yeah, what she would sure. say, I think. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one more because um, I have met up and have lived with a few Maves in my time. If if you pulled up and you were at Maves, I don't want to say homestead, but her her inn, what would Maeve say to you? Maeve um, is is a terrific character who's who owns a B and B or in, as you call it, in a, a little tiny town in Alberta, which has fallen on significantly hard times, the town and her B&B. Um, and, and in some ways, I, I stayed in a B&B in the area, and the B&B owner and I got to know each other and chatted a lot. It was a lot of fun. And she's still actually a Facebook friend and reads my books and things. And she is not Maeve. I will be. I will hasten to say that, just in case she's insulted by the thought I, that I thought she was eighty plus years old, um, okay. and but anyway, but in many ways, some of the quirky characteristics Maeve has, I could see in this woman that I know. So I think Maeve, if I, if I if Amanda if I pulled up into her driveway of her B and B, she would probably say she would probably squint at me, and she'd say, yeah. "We're closed." But you want a burger and a beer? Yeah. <laughs> or maybe a burger and a big rock. That was her favorite beer. That, that's perfect. Yeah. So, Barbara, is there anything you would like to add? And, um, yeah, anything about when the book's coming out and where anything else you'd like to add? And where can the listeners find you on the socials? Um, yes. Well, first I want to add, I want to thank you very much for having me in and talking to me and it's been a real fun chat i must say um reading I, I i want people to know that reading is a wonderful escape and entertainment when we can hardly go out of the house so i urge everybody to stay safe stay healthy and stay yeah. sane by escaping into a good book i also want you to think about reading canadian and buying from your local independent bookstore i'm a, i'm actually on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, although I don't really know what to do with those last two, by the way. Um, <laughs> and I have a website with lots of information at www.barbarafradkin.com. But I will mention at this point, since this podcast is coming out before my virtual book launch, that I am having a virtual book launch for The Ancient Dead on January 28th at 7 p.m. And it's open to everybody and it's free. It's an hour long of chat with me and Rick Mafina. If you ha he's a thriller writer um, who I think we're going to have a good time talking about the book and doing a quick reading and questions and answers. And the invitation is available on the first page of my website there. If anybody okay. wants to sign up or check it out, no pressure, but just in case you're looking for something to do on January 28th at 7 p.m. And that's 7 p.m. Eastern time. Oh, yes, it'll time, be Eastern so time, yes. So 4 p.m. Yeah. Pacific time and in between that for the various prairies. The uh, It's an Eventbrite invitation, which, so you register and then you get reminders. It's quite handy. And it's a free, a free event, event, too. Yeah. 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 Well, Barbara, thank you. Thank you for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. And I understand you have a new Inspector Green novel coming out later this year. I do. Yes. The, the Ancient Dead was supposed to come out in the fall, but the pandemic delayed it. So the next yeah. Inspector Green was scheduled by the publisher to come out next fall. And it's still on track to do that. 
Well, I hope you stop by the, and I'm doing the little air quotes here, the dressing room, and we can chat about it. I would love that. I would love that too, Joanna. Oh, good, good. And listeners, if you like the podcast, please just pop on over to the website, jcvartstudio.net, and click subscribe. Barbara, thank you so much. Thank you, Joanna. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.